Good morning. As usual, my computer and I don't really get along, so um, I'll just stand up here awkwardly for a little bit while I try and get this to cooperate with me. Uh, it is always an immense privilege uh, to be here with you guys. I, I don't know why um, you keep letting me come back, but I'm, I'm not going to complain. And um, such an encouraging reminder that I, I have been coming here since, uh, since my first, second, second year in seminary, I think. So, so five years um, that you guys have been putting up with me. So it's just a, a wonderful opportunity always to come out here with you guys. All right. All right, things are getting serious. Hold on. Uh, we'll be uh, this morning in Ephesians 1. No, we won't. We're going to be in Ephesians 2. I do know what I'm preaching, I promise. Um, Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 7. All right. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, as we come to this glorious and amazing passage about the richness of your grace, I pray that you would enable me to accurately preach your word of truth, that we may all, Lord, be shepherded by your word. Lord, grant us ears to hear and eyes to see, that may your spirit work in our hearts through the preaching of your word, that may, we may be changed into the likeness of Christ. Uh, we thank you so much for your incredible, undeserved grace. And in your name, amen. All right, well, uh, we live uh, currently in a world that is obsessed uh, with sickness. Uh, we can't turn on the TV or the radio uh, without hearing about the current COVID numbers going up or down in different uh, parts of the world. Uh, you open a web browser to check your mail, and the suggested news stories are probably going to be related to something that happened over the past week or month uh, related to COVID. Uh, we're reminded of the sickness on a daily basis when we get up to the store, and we have to turn around and go back to our car because we forgot our mask on the passenger seat. Uh, even before COVID, there was a long-standing uh, pursuit of a cure for cancer um, or epidemics that would occasionally pop up throughout the world and take over headlines for a month. Uh, sicknesses and the cures for them is a topic that the world is used to talking about and very comfortable talking about. However, uh, there is another sickness uh, 
that none of the major headlines are talking about. Uh, It is more widespread than COVID, and its effects are much more devastating. Uh, This is a sickness which has ruined lives, families, and nations. Uh, This sickness is the most long-standing of epidemics in the history of the world. This sickness is one which uh, many try to medicate on their own terms or simply ignore altogether. You probably know what I'm about to say. The sickness is sin. And unlike COVID, which is caught from someone else, this is a sickness which each and every one of us are born with. Until we acknowledge that we are infected with the disease of sin, it is impossible to see the grace of God. Uh, Understanding this on a basic level is necessary to even be saved, uh, because how can someone come to Christ and ask to be saved from something that they don't think that they are in danger of? Uh, However, even for those of us who are in Christ, there is a danger that we forget how sinful we were. Uh, We forget that before Christ, our diagnosis was terminal and then have our view of the richness of God's grace to us be diminished. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to professing believers. Uh, So while there's uh, very evangelistic uh, themes, uh, this is not an evangelistic letter. This is a letter to the church. And he wants to make sure that they understand the incomparable, uh, the incomparable, excuse me, majesty of God's grace. Uh, There may not be any other book in the New Testament that holds up the glory of our salvation so magnificently as the book of Ephesians. Uh, One commentator says that if the letter to the Galatians is like a bomb, then the letter to the Ephesians is like a jewel. Uh, This morning, we are going to look at two necessary elements of seeing the richness of God's grace in Christ. Uh, The first the first necessary element of seeing the richness of God's grace in Christ. Understand your sinfulness apart from Christ. Uh, Look, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, Put simply, this means that before salvation took place, you were without spiritual life. Uh, these two words, trespasses and sins, are very similar to each other. He's not, uh, he's not trying to convey uh, two distinct categories of sin. Rather, it's the comprehensive nature of all sin. You were, you were caught up in uh, all sin, all of your being caught up in sin. Uh, but also consider the finality of what it means to be described as dead. Uh, he does not say that you are sick. In your sins and trespasses, he does not say that you were injured in your sins and trespasses. He says that you were dead. Uh, I use the analogy that we have a sickness called sin, but the reality is that it has already killed us. We are ultimately headed towards judgment, but we do not start out alive and become progressively more dead in sin. We start out dead in our sins and trespasses. Um, I, I want to take just a little bit of time to, to briefly look at how the, des- how the Bible describes our sinful state, uh, the default position of every human being after the fall. If we go back to uh, Genesis 1, a story that probably all of us are familiar with, God created a world with no death, no sin, no pain, no sin. And he created uh, Adam and Eve and told them that they could eat of any tree in the garden but one. And if they ate from that tree, they would surely die. Uh, we all know what happened. They, they ate the fruit, 
And from that moment until now, spiritual and physical death has consumed humanity and will continue to consume humanity until Christ makes all things new. It wasn't long after this that the first physical death took place when Cain murdered his own brother. Uh, Moving a little further through Genesis, uh, Genesis 5 records the genealogy of Adam until Noah and the refrain that rings out, after someone is named, over and over, is, and he died. Over and over and over. And what is this emphasizing? The death that reigned as the consequence of sin, which was now in the world. After this, humanity became so morally depraved, so repugnant that God wiped out all of humanity with a flood, except for Noah and his family. Um, You would think at this point that they might get the point that maybe things could start over fresh from faithful Noah, uh, but with sin infecting anything and everything in the world, uh, things did not get better. If we jump forward to First uh, and Second Kings, which describes a large portion of Israel's history, uh, this is what it often says about its rulers. First Kings 15.26, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. 1534, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. 1625, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. Not to be outdone, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. If we move forward to 2 Kings, the same refrain is repeated in 2 Kings 13.2, 13.11, 14.24, 15.9, 15.18, and then 11 more times after that. Evil in the sight of the Lord. So as we move forward through redemptive history, we can see human beings never really cleaned up their act. In commenting on humanity's deplorable moral state, the prophet Jeremiah says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? The prophet Isaiah takes it even one step further and he says, We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So Jeremiah says that our heart is deceptive, desperately sick. Isaiah says that even when we try to do good, our best acts apart from Christ They are a filthy and polluted garment. So maybe in your heart, uh, you might be tempted to think that all of this is describing the dregs of humanity, the, the worst of the worst, the bottom of the barrel. If we jump forward to the New Testament, listen to what Paul says in Romans 3 as a comprehensive statement about all of humanity. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Can you imagine a more scathing description of your heart and my heart? Are you beginning to see the hopeless position of humanity 
and our spiritual death. So if we come back now to our our passage in Ephesians 2, in verses 2 and 3, Paul goes on to describe for us what a life of spiritual death actually looks like. Uh, First, he says that we follow the course of this world. So the sinful direction that this entire world is going and has been going, uh, each and every one of us born into this world, we were going the exact same way. Uh, We were not somehow trying to break away and go differently. We willingly went along. Um, this, this going along the same direction, it's not like a, a train or a bus ride where we can get on and off as we please. You know, well, th- this is as far as I, I want to go in this direction. I'm going to get off and, and take a break. Um, instead, imagine being in the midst of a raging river. It's far too wide to get to either side. The waters are moving far too fast to even attempt to swim against the current. To make matters worse, it is the middle of the night, and so you can see nothing. Uh, the churning water keeps pulling you beneath the surface. And you can no longer tell up from down. You are hopelessly and helplessly swept downstream with nothing that you can do about it and no way to save yourself. Uh, that is what it is like to be caught up in the direction of this world. Uh, as willing as we are, we, we cannot escape. Uh, we cannot break away and go a different direction. We are blind and we are, are dead, being pulled relentlessly towards judgment that we deserve because of our sin. Paul goes on to describe uh, the one we follow is Satan himself. He takes it a step further than just calling him our leader. He says that he is our father. Prior to our conversion, uh, the Bible quite literally says that we are children of the devil. Uh, you, you might in your heart be tempted to think, oh, Paul, that's, that's harsh. That's, that's a little far. Um, I've made mistakes. I, I'm, I've sinned. Uh, you might even be willing to admit that you're not a good person. But certainly, I am no child of the devil. Uh, look at what he says next. He says, among whom we all once lived. There are, there are no exceptions. Uh, again, this is not the worst of the worst. This isn't just those really, really bad sinners that you read about on the news. This is all of our hearts. Yeah, he says, we lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out any and every desire and impulse that we had. Uh, this word passion, it means lust or craving. So before Christ All of us simply followed every craving of our body and mind one after the other. No self-control, no self-restraint, and any desire that we did have to be free was nowhere near as strong as our desire for more sin. please, Please understand, this is not the description of a victim. We are not victims of our sin we, we are the antagonist in this story. We are the, the willing criminals. Paul says that because of this, we were children of wrath. And the direction that we were headed was towards perfect, just judgment for all of our sin. Paul reminds us again, as the rest of mankind, 
So after all of this, Paul knows how tempted we will be to think that we're somehow morally superior to this description. Uh, He reminds us again that we're in the same state as all of fallen humanity. Uh, God is not saving. He is not interested in saving the cream of the crop. Uh, we, We were the worst of the worst. In his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, uh, Ralph Fenning says, what is done by any man would be done by every man if God did not restrain some men from it by his power and constrain others to obedience by his love and power. So when you turn on the news and you see some horrific crime that is committed, uh, some unspeakable evil done by someone But for the grace of God, so would every one of us be. Christian, are are you ever tempted to think that you were saved because of some inherent worth or value within you? In the back of your mind, you think that God saved you because you were better than those around you. Uh, Paul is repeatedly reminding us that none of us have any advantage over another. Uh, All of us are equally lost without Christ. Or maybe you don't just think that you were better. Uh, You think that you weren't that bad to begin with. That Christ came along and assisted you to kind of get you over the hump in a direction that you were already going. Uh, He he showed up at at the right time, but you may have been okay without him. If this is you, let me remind you what Paul said in the very beginning. We were dead. And dead people tend to not save themselves. Uh, Dead people don't ever save themselves. Are you tempted to look at your life prior to Christ as anything other than utterly hopeless? Are you tempted to look at the state of your heart without Christ as anything other than completely vile? For a moment, think with me about what sin sin is. Sin is insurrection against a perfect ruler. Sin is ostracization from a loving father. Sin is the grossest type of exploitation and abuse of God's mercy. Sin is willing participation in the worst crimes imaginable. And our hearts are full of all of this, beloved. There is no part of this, no evil, so evil that our hearts would not willingly take place joyfully in it, but for the grace of God. You have not truly come to terms with your own sinfulness until you have looked at your heart and concluded that there could not be anything in all of creation worse than you. And if the story stopped here, there would be absolutely no hope. We would have nothing but cold despair and a grim waiting of divine judgment. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The second necessary element of seeing the richness of God's grace in Christ is that we marvel at God's infinite love. In contrast to what we deserved in our sinful state, 
If you are a Christian this morning, God has made you alive in Christ out of the abundance of his merciful character. Uh, Do you see that, that beautiful word, because? He did not do this because of something good in you or something that you did to earn this. He did this because of his great love. He is the reason that he saves sinful people. There is no room in the gospel for any other foundation of God saving you other than his own incredible love for sinners. Oh, um, bear, bear with me in just a little bit of, of nerdiness about the grammar of this passage. Uh, the Greek is structured in such a way that verses 1 through 3 do not have a complete sentence. Um, I know you didn't show up here for a grammar lesson, but please just bear with me. A sentence has to have a subject and a verb to be a sentence. And in verses 1 through 3 in the Greek, there is no actual subject and verb. So as the original readers were reading this, they would have known that Paul was leading them towards something else. As he was describing their sinful state, they would have been waiting to see what he was going to say because he had not yet provided an actual subject and verb. So why, why would he do this? Why would he go through all this description without providing the main idea of the passage until verse 4 when he says, but God? Well, I think quite possibly it's because even though God's redemption of us is the main idea, the main subject and verb of this passage, it is impossible to truly understand that unless we first understand the depravity of our hearts. Paul had to lead his readers through the depths of their own sins so that when he got to what he really wanted to talk about, which was the magnificent grace of God, they would be ready to hear it. Understanding our sinful state is a prerequisite to seeing the beauty of God's grace. We cannot see it as the incredibly undeserved gift that it is unless we see how hopeless our case was without Christ. The blackness of our hearts highlights the infinite riches of his grace. Just like the hymn that we just sang, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. Paul's point in this passage is that he wants the believers to walk away awestruck by the majesty of God's matchless grace. He wants to take believers who might be growing used to grace, bored with grace, indifferent to grace, and shock them back into awe by reminding them in the most graphic and vivid of terms how incredible incredible their salvation is. If you did not know the story of redemption and you were reading through this passage, this would not be the ending that you would expect. To call this a plot twist is a gross understatement. Have you grasped, beloved, the impossibility of your salvation, the absolute certainty of your demise in the path that you were headed with no hope of changing the direction. Christian, do you realize that God didn't have to save you? It is so important that we understand this. He was not compelled by something outside of himself to offer us salvation. He offered it volitionally out of the overflow and abundance of his loving character. 
If someone forces you to give them a gift, it isn't, it isn't really a gift. When we get our paycheck on Friday, um, unless you're just very polite, you probably don't go to your boss's office and say, thank you so much, you really didn't have to do this. Uh, and why is that? It's because you worked for it. This is not a gift. It is, it is your, your due. It is just for you to receive the funds that were agreed upon for your labor. In our salvation, we're given the opposite of what we have earned. That's why Romans 6.23 says, listen to the words, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The death that we receive, we've been working hard for those wages our whole life without Christ. We are getting exactly what we have worked for from the moment that we were born. But the gift of eternal life in Christ is completely and incredibly undeserved. And there is nothing that we could have done to earn it or work for it or deserve it in any way. Knowing that God in his infinite wisdom willingly chose to save us is the absolute bankruptcy of human logic. Because there was nothing savable. There was nothing worthwhile in us and yet God, but God, in his great love, chose to save us because he is such a loving God. Uh, something else that I, I want to point out here is that we are saved and forgiven solely on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. But this does not mean that the Father loves us because of Christ's death and resurrection. Sinclair Ferguson uh, on this topic in his wonderful book, The Whole Christ, says, we must not confuse the truth that our sins are forgiven only because of the death and resurrection of Christ with the very different notion that God loves us only because of the death and resurrection of Christ. No, he loved us from the first of time and therefore sent his son who came willingly to die for us in this way, a right understanding of the work of Christ leads to a true understanding of the matchless love the Father has for us. He continues on, From time to time, the thought will erupt that perhaps the Father himself, in himself, does not love us as the Son does. Such a disposition leads to a spirit of suspicion and even bondage, not one of freedom and joy. Then when, the question, when we ask the question, who is this Father God with whom we have to do and what manner of Father is he? We may never fully escape the suspicion that he is not a Father of infinite love after all. Friends, do you think of God as a perpetually disappointed Father who is obligated to tolerate you because of Christ's death on the cross? Do you think of the Father as one who watches you scornfully and patiently, expecting you to fail? And friend, if you do, then this text is for you. Paul says that the salvation we have been given is because of his great love for us, even while we were sinners. Maybe 
you did not have a healthy relationship with your earthly father. Maybe it was a broken relationship full of mistrust and doubt. With our heavenly father, there is never a need for any doubt, any insecurity. We never have to wonder whether or not he will accept us into his arms. We never have to question the sincerity of his affection for us. He loves us with an unconditional love, infinitely beyond anything that we can imagine. Let me ask you this morning, are you, are you acquainted with this love in a way that causes you to marvel at him and what he has done? The fact that God saved us even while we were sinners is further evidence that the Father loves us. This is also why it says we are saved only by grace. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. So if we truly understand our sinful state without Christ, we know that hell is not harsh, it is not excessive, it is not over the top, it is exactly what we deserve. And if we understand how hopelessly lost we were, we cannot conclude anything other than the fact that we were saved completely by grace alone and that we had nothing to do with it. You did not contribute anything to your salvation. You did not add to the work of Christ. We were saved despite who we were, not because of who we were. It has been rightly observed that you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Uh, Paul's wording here is so similar to Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why theologians refer to this as unmerited favor. You did not do anything to earn your salvation. You did not do anything to catch God's eye. It is so crucial that you do not miss this because this is not a peripheral gem of the gospel. This is at the core of our standing, understanding of what the gospel is. Christian, if you did not earn God's forgiveness, then it also means that you cannot lose it. If God loved you because you maintained some level of moral excellence, then as soon as you failed, he would take that love away. His love is set upon you, and its basis is not anything in you, but rather is based upon his own merciful and loving character. His merciful and loving character that does not change, because God does not change. And God didn't just stop at making us alive and then leave us to do the rest on our own. Paul says he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. One common uh, commentator that you may have heard of, his name's John MacArthur, he says, not only are we dead to sin and alive to righteousness through his resurrection in which we are raised, but we also enjoy his exaltation and share his preeminent glory. This represents our change in identity. Though our physical bodies are still here, our citizenship is now in heaven. In God's eyes, we're no longer associated with the sinful things of this world. This is the already not yet of our life in Christ. Though we are here in this world, and at times we even fall prey to sin, in God's eyes, we are already perfected and seated with him in heaven. That is how secure our salvation is in Christ, that in, in God's mind, it is already done and we are there with him. Notice how much Paul wants us to understand the amazing nature of God's grace. If we read these verses without all of the, the adjectives and adverbs and extra phrases, it says, 
But God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. That truth alone is marvelous. It is incredible. And yet, Paul felt like that wouldn't get the point across in the way that he wanted to. So now, with that as a backdrop, let me read for you the actual passage again when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Paul wants us to be overwhelmed with what God has done. Paul did not offer this as a theology lesson. He offered this so that our hearts could be absolutely captivated at how incredible God's grace is. Our finite minds we cannot even begin to grasp the infinite chasm between our sin and what we, what we deserve in our sin and what we have been given in Christ. And the more we understand how huge that chasm is, the more we will see how incredible God's grace is. Uh, Paul tells us why God has done this. Look in verse 7 when he says, so that God did this so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, the word there for immeasurable, it means to attain a degree that, is extra that extraordinarily exceeds, uh, to go beyond, to outdo, to surpass, um, this word, it's, it's hard to, to really get the idea across in English. It, lots of extra. <laughs> More extra than you can really comprehend. Um, riches. Uh, also, it carries the, the idea of having a, an abundance. You know, Paul's saying God's grace is so amazingly infinite in its quality and its quantity, we don't even really have words to contain what it is. We, we can't really define it in a way that we know the start and the end. All we can do is look at it and say, that is incredible. That is so marvelous. That, that exceeds anything that I can understand. That grace is immeasurable. It surpasses any category that I have. And look at what the substance of this immeasurably rich grace is. It is the kindness that he has showed us in Christ Jesus. His graciousness towards us is shown in the fact that rather than send us to hell as we deserved, he sent his own son to hang upon a cross and to bear all the righteous wrath and just judgment for our sin. And then after being dead for three days, he raised him from the dead and brought him back to heaven, showing his victory over sin and death. And this was all done on our behalf while we were yet sinners. And beloved, we get so used to this. We drive down the highway and we see billboards that say, God loves you. Professional athletes put John 3.16 under their eyes. Everyone is so casual and flippant with this love of God like it isn't a big deal. And even for those of us who truly know the gospel, we so easily forget what we deserved and the magnitude of God's love. So some practical implications from this verse, from this passage. Um, first, 
We must be honest with ourselves about whether or not we appreciate the gospel as we should. If we find ourselves casual and flippant with the gospel, or maybe just unmoved, it is probably because we don't really understand how abundant and rich and infinitely undeserved God's grace is towards us. We must pray and ask God to give us an ever-increasing awareness of how incredible his grace and mercy is. If the world were to watch your private walk with God, would they see the testimony of someone who has been captured by God's grace and lives in humble worship and grateful adoration of their loving Father? Second, humility leading to unity. When we truly understand how we deserved none of God's grace, it puts our own preferences in their proper place. Uh, How can we who have been given so much have any sense of entitlement towards anyone? When we marvel at God's grace, it kills pride and exalts unity in the church, which is exactly where where Paul goes later in this letter. The grace of God and understanding our salvation rightly should lead to unity because unity flourishes in the midst of humility. A third application is personal holiness. If we see how amazing his grace is towards us, our our response should be an overwhelming gratitude displayed in humble obedience, uh, which is exactly where Paul goes just a little bit later in this passage. Uh, Paul wants us to, God wants us, in light of his salvation, to go and live out the good works that he prepared for us in Christ Jesus. When we sin uh, as believers, often is due in part to becoming ungrateful for our salvation, used to our salvation. When we stop being grateful, when we stop remembering what God has done for us, sin flourishes when we are reminded of how much we've been given that we don't deserve, how can we turn our hearts to sin? How can we turn ourselves to the things that God hates when we remember what he has done to save us from those things? Uh, Fourth, maybe you're here and none of this is you. Uh, Maybe you you have not experienced this amazing, life-changing grace. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord in this way, I'm so incredibly glad that you are here and you get to hear of what God has done to save sinners. Uh, Maybe as you hear this, you think that you're, you're just too bad. Your life is just too much of a wreck. You've made too much of a mess of everything for God to want to save you. Remember what Paul said. Each and every one of us, we are dead in our sins. There are are only really, really, really bad sinners. And God loves to save them. Christ said he did not come to save the healthy, but the sick. We all need a doctor. We all need to be saved. He loves saving sinners so much that he sent his own son to bear the penalty of sin so that you and I could be saved and experience this incredible, matchless grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we read through this passage, 
we are, we are humbled and, and reminded of how magnificent your grace is. This incredible grace that you love to show off by saving despicable, sinful people. Lord, we cannot say thank you enough. We cannot give back to you enough of what you deserve for saving us from judgment, saving us from the penalty of sin. Even while we were yet sinners, Lord, you loved us and laid out the plan of salvation in eternity past to save those who hated you. Lord, make us grateful for salvation, even, Lord, as we prepare for Easter Sunday. Remind us of the great cost to you of our salvation that you willingly put into place so that you could save your enemies from your own judgment of sin. Make us humble, obedient children who love to give you glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much, Josh, for...